how the Holy Spirit orchestrates things. Um, it's interesting the passage that the Lord brought to Joel's mind. Because I think you'll find that it's apropos with today's message. We're living in a world where people call evil good and good evil. And as Joel said, <laughs> that's been true throughout history, unfortunately. Um, but before uh, we get into today's message, I just want to make you aware of a few things uh, to be praying for. Uh, I think many of you are aware on the international stage there's been a coup in Haiti, and uh, the president was assassinated. We've got a sister church in a town called Enry, and uh, an orphanage that we support in Limbe. So let's be praying for the protection of our brothers and sisters in Haiti, and through that season, both physically and spiritually. You know, they can be drawn in some things that maybe are ungodly. Um, good report. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you saw a uh, video report from our new next-gen pastor who will be here on staff on August 1st. Uh, I'm happy to report that he and his wife, Caitlin, found a house this week, so you can continue to be praying for that. Uh, and just their transition today is their last day at their church, River of Life, up in Hastings. So be praying for that. You know, it's, it's always a, a sweet sorrow of going from one church family to another. So you can be praying for them in that. And, you know, if you show up next week, you just might see him. Spoiler alert, okay? So uh, there is a crass saying out there. No one is completely useless. You can always serve as a bad example. And that crass, glib statement kind of rails against the value that God gives men and women, right? Because we are created in His image to know Him, to be His children. He, he sent His Son in order to redeem us, to make us His children if we respond to that. But when men and women persist in their rebellion against God, when they shake their fist at Him, when they ignore Him, insist on doing things their own way, when they never turn to Him, they never repent, and they insist on it's my way or the highway, then you're heading for a world of hurt, both for yourself and for others. And that is the case in what we're going to see in today's installment through the book of Judges. And if you have your Bible, you might want to crack it open to Judges chapter 9. We're going to meet the vengeful, wayward son of a famous judge. We're going to see the life that he lives, the choices that he makes really serve as an example, a cautionary tale against what not to do in living your life before God and one another. As we see that he appoints himself to be king, we're going to see how different the true king of kings, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is from this self-appointed king. And we're going to again see the life that Jesus gives us. So, let me pray for us, and then we're going to meet this self-appointed king today. So Lord Jesus, um, we thank you for the life that you give us. We thank you for your word that shows us the truth about ourselves and about you. And I pray that your word would do its work today. A word that is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Let it pierce where it needs to pierce. Let it do its surgery where it needs to do its surgery. Let it heal where it needs to heal. But let it cause us to turn to you and give us hope. Because, Lord Jesus, you are the only hope that we have. But that is not wishful thinking hope. It is guaranteed hope in who you are. So again, Lord, use your word. Use my words to speak to our hearts and to get us to where you want us to be. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. 
So way back in Judges chapter 6, we met a man named Gideon. And I want to uh, right now give public gratitude to both John Downer and Jim Kluth for filling the pulpit for the next two weeks because, you know, not only did they preach in series in the book, but they preached about the same character. And so that's, that's a challenge, and they did it well. So I'm grateful that I can, hand, I can hand off the pulpit to reliable men, and that they do that well. It's, it is a, I will tell you, a lot of pastors do not have that privilege and that, that, uh, those resources. So I'm grateful, and I want to say thank you to them. But in, in chapter 6, we meet Gideon, who is a reluctant rescuer. He needs a lot of reassurance as he's called to pull down his own father's idolatrous temp, uh, altar to Baal. In chapter 7, we see that God whittles down his force of 30,000 to 300, armed with torches, trumpets, and terracotta pots against a force of 130,000 to show that it was God who delivered, not them and their might. And then in chapter 8, we meet Gideon's mop-up of the Midian kings, his harsh treatment of those who refuse to help him, and he ushers in a 40-year peace. But he doesn't finish so well. Yes, he, he refuses to become king because the people say, be king and reign over. He says, no, 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 no. The Lord will be your king. And that's right. But he acts like he's king. He accepts a large sum of gold, which he turns into an ephod, which is a priestly vestment that contains within it what's called the urm and the thummim. It's kind of a way to determine a yes or no. It's kind of like the magic eight ball of the time, right? And they, basically, he was kind of gathering spiritual influence for himself. Hey, if you want to find out what the Lord thinks, come to my hometown of Ophrah and find out how the Lord is leading. He's also a collector of women, of wives. Many, many wives maybe to show his sexual prowess, or he was a great man. And the result was 70 sons, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having lots of children, but, you know, it was based more about his ego than it was about, you know, rejoicing in the Lord. But also along the way of collecting wives, he had a, a baby mama, a concubine outside of town. You see, he had all of his wives in Ophrah, and his 70 sons, but over here in which is in, in Manasseh, in, in Ephraim, in Shechem. He had a concubine. And a son was born out of that. And it had nothing to do with, you know, him being part of the family. It was just a love child, if you will. So that son, whose name is Abimelech, which means my father is king, he kind of feels like an outsider. Well, that's how things are kind of set up. And the people of God start to stray. They start to worship this ephod instead of the living God. And so there's turmoil. And when he dies, things fall apart, both nationally and in his family. And this is where we pick up the story. I'm actually kicking back to chapter 8, verse 33 to 35. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things that he had done for them. So if you've been with us in this series, you know that oftentimes when the judge dies, the people go back to their idolatry and they start worshiping the Baals, Baal Berith. And this is kind of an ironic name. Baal meaning lord or owner, Berith meaning covenant. So this is the Baal of the covenant. And we'll see there's some irony here. 
But these last words of chapter 8 are actually an introduction to what takes place in chapter 9. The people forget the Lord, and they're not kind to Gideon's family. So here's what happens. Pick it up at verse 1. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them all in, in, in his mother's clan, Ask the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. And when the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech. But they said, he is related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. They went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. First thing I want you to see today is that actions reveal character. Actions reveal character. Remember, Abimelech probably feels like he's not a part of the family. He's been left out. Maybe he feels like he doesn't stand to inherit anything. He feels slighted. And so Abimelech operates out of his hurt or perceived inequity. Again, he feels like an outsider. And Scripture doesn't tell us how he was treated by Gideon or his brothers by relation. But his brothers were going to be punished. Maybe for the mistakes of his father. And he decides that he's going to make things right for his, the perceived well, slights that he has experienced. There's a reason why James 1.20 says, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Let me say that again. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. When we try and take justice into our own hands to make things right, we mess up. Because we become the source of all justice what is right or what is wrong. Whether it's an, a relative that's abused us, whether it's a boss that's been unkind to us, whether it's that guy who cut us off in traffic. Yesterday, I mean, I'm just being honest, I'm, I am driving to church. And I come to an intersection, and a person fails to yield legally to me. Man, I will tell you all sorts of ungodly Justice came for me in my thinking. Illegal, even. I went from zero to 60. And I said, how ironic, God. How ironic. If I decided to take justice, it would not be God's justice. It would be over the top. I cannot bring about God's justice. You cannot bring about God's justice. That's why God says, justice is mine. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. He says it twice. He says it in Deuteronomy. Chapter 32, verse 35. He repeats it again in Paul's letter. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Here's a truth, folks. Hurt people oftentimes hurt people. Do you know that? People who've been hurt in their lives, they've been hurt by somebody, something, they'll turn around and hurt others. I've, in all my years of ministry, I'm finding that to be true. And so I ask that of you. If you've been hurt, are, are, are you hurting others? Am I hurting others? Are we operating out of our hurt, people? Out of our perceived slights? Are we trying to make things right ourselves? 
trying to seek justice? Or will we in faith, and it is an act of faith, because sometimes you think, God, they're going to get away with it. They're not. But that's what we think. Can we say, vengeance is yours. You will repay. You'll deal with this, God. Are we operating out of our hurt? Number two, Abimelech does whatever it takes to seize power. He's operating under the, the mantra of might makes right. The ends justifies the means. I see an opportunity and I'm going to take it. Gideon was called by the Lord to lead God's people. Abimelech was not. But he seized it anyway. He took it for himself. Not for God, for himself. He took it by force. Just because you can do something does not mean that you should do something. Just because the opportunity is there does not mean that it's right. Does not mean that God is calling you to do it. Be careful about letting ambition rule you. Be careful about operating out of pragmatism. When we operate out of pragmatism, and that's the sole thing that leads us, it often leads to godlessness. Number three, your actions show who your God really is. Your actions show who your God really is. For Abimelech, it was not Yahweh. It was not the Lord. It was Baal Bereth, which ironically is called the Lord or the owner of the covenant. This false god is aping the living God. You see, the living God is the God who says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. There is none like me. He's the God that says, you shall not kill. He's the God who says, you shall love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Putting your brothers to death is not loving your neighbor as yourself. But that who's, that's who the God is. It's because it's in His character that His covenant is rooted being holy, being the source of all justice, all righteousness. This Baal Beareth is a false god. So there's irony here, right? The people have traded the true God of the covenant for this false god. They're aping who God is. Isn't that the way Satan does it? He holds up a cheap imitation, tries to mislead us down the wrong way. Here's also the irony of the location. This is Shechem. Shechem is the place in Genesis chapter 12 where Abram first enters Canaan. And God reveals himself to him and says, I am going to make you a blessing. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to all the nations. And I'm going to give you the land. It's also the place where the people come back, led by Joshua, to two to two mountains, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, and renew the covenant of the living God, the only God, after battling false gods in the desert. But again, this is a false God that the people are worshiping. And the covenant that Abimelech has made is, if I serve you, You'll give me what I want, which is to be king. Did you notice that Baal Berith sponsored the death of his brothers? Seventy shekels, seventy sons. How's that for a budget meeting? A false god. Again, it's Satan's strategy to worship a false god, to mislead us from the true and living God. We think this God will give us what He wants. The living God, He gives us what we need. He gives us what we need in this life and beyond. 
And what we need is Him. What we need is Him. <laughs> Do you notice when God brought the people of Israel through the, the desert for 40 years? There were times when they, they had a lot of gold. Couldn't buy anything out in the desert, though. They lacked water. They lacked bread. And then God would take care of them. He brought them through that to show them that He was their life. Not their bread. Not their gold. Not their own ingenuity. And ultimately, He gives us what we need in His Son, Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that. But that's the reason why He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man, no woman comes to the Father except through me. There is no other. There is... The, Imitation is a false god. My question for us is, what gods are we worshiping? Even subtly. What are the things that we are saying, oh, if I have this, that will really give me life. You know, I was out in Maui a week ago. Beautiful place. A reason to worship. But Maui is not life. It's just a beautiful place. My life was not fulfilled because I went to Maui. It's a great place to enjoy, a great, great place to worship, but Maui is not my Savior. Lord Jesus is. Don't be looking for experiences, for possessions, for even relationships other than God to, to be your fulfillment. Those can be false gods, people. What do your actions tell us about the God you serve? Are you worshiping a God that gives you what you want or what you need? And that's Him. Okay, we need to keep moving here. Actions reveal character. The people of Shechem, right? We got Abimelech, but then we got the people of Shechem who sponsor. Abimelech's takeover. They are willing to be disloyal to a man who risked his life for them. For selfish connection and tribalism. Hey, he's one of us. Forget, you know, Gideon's other sons. We're going to take this guy even if they're murdered. They sponsored their murder. Their God was self-interest. And it their decision was foolish and it was short-sighted because a person who comes to power using abuse and violence at the expense of others will do so to maintain that power as well. And we're going to see that. Jesus says you will know them by their fruits. Abimelech's fruit has already been made evident. They already see what he's all about. For us, what's the criteria where we choose our leaders? Because they're go-getters? Because they're fighters? Because they're powerful? Because they're talented? Because they're charismatic? How about character? How about character? Who they are? Are they men? Are they women of integrity? Are we choosing leaders because of that? I think one of the reasons why our nation is such a mess is because we've lost that. We've not chosen men and women of integrity to lead us. That's what we need to be leading us. Okay. So let's get back to the story. Because remember, this, this son Jotham gets away, right? And they're going to decide to make Abimelech king. Verse 6. Then all the citizens of Shechem at Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar of, of, in Shechem, to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed to the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. Okay, so it's at a distance, right? He's got a little, he's got a little cushion of people decided to come chasing after him. He's also elevated, so he's got you know, the acoustics working for him. But he's about to land them some serious truth. And he's going to give them a prophetic 
parable. Verse 8. One day the trees went out to anoint the king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. And the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, which, is, which both gods and humans are honored, to hold sway over the trees? Next, the tree said to the fig tree, Come, be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, Come, be our king. And the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? So each one of these trees that is called to be king, they have something to offer. The olive tree has its oil. The fig tree has its sweet fruit. The vine has its wine. This is something valued by the society of the time. But here's the thing. In order to take that role of leadership, they had to give up what they were producing. They had to give up something. They had to sacrifice to lead. And they wouldn't do it. We've got a king who's assuming power here. Think how different Jesus, the king of kings, is. He gives up his glory to come and put on flesh and dwell among us. He gives up his divine privilege. He empties himself. He becomes a servant to come and seek and save that which was lost. He will be used and abused. He will sacrifice himself. But he comes as a good shepherd. Abimelech comes as a wolf to consume. Again, in our story, none of these trees are willing to do so. They're not willing to give up. And so the trees make a desperate decision in this parable. Finally, in verse 14, the tree said to the thorn bush, Come, be our king. And the thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the thorn bush to consume the cedars of Lebanon. <laughs> now, here's the truth. Thorn bushes are basically good for nothing. Maybe, maybe they're good for planting on a perimeter of something you're trying to protect, but they keep growing and they take up space. and you, it, They basically take up resources. And they're a pain. You've gotta, <laughs> and you just end up rooting them out, typically. And as far as their shape, they only grow about two, three feet, right? He's telling these trees that are going to the sky, come under my shade. They're going to have to demean themselves to get under this, this bush. They're going to have to be less than what God intended them to be. And if they're a fire hazard, if they catch on fire... They burn everything else around them. Again, these trees need to stoop to come under the umbrella of the thorn bush. Something that is good for nothing. It's very telling about the, the choice that these people make as their king. Number two, the Lord is the source of all justice. Verse 16. Have you acted honorably and in good faith in making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jerubbaal and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian? But today you have revolted against my family's father. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone. Remember that word stone. Okay? And made Abimelech, the son of a a female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is related to you. So, you've, so have you acted honorably and in good faith toward Drew Baal and his family today? If you have, well then may Abimelech be your joy. And may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo to consume Abimelech. 
than Jotham escaping to Beer. He lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech, and probably with good reason. As much as Jotham was saying to the people, and the word Jotham, the name Jotham means Yahweh is perfect or Yahweh is blameless, and he is, saying, listen to me, he was basically saying, God is listening to me. He says, hey, if what you've done is fair to my father's house, and let's face it, it isn't, then hey, God bless you, let you guys be happy with each other. But if not... And let's face it, it's not. Then may God bring his justice and may he use you to consume one another. May he bring his punishment. This is an opportunity for the people of God to repent. This is an opportunity for them to come face to face with what they've done wrong and to turn back to God. And it might be hard, It might be difficult because what they did was pretty despicable and there might be some consequences. How about you? How about me? When we have crossed the line, are we willing to turn back to God and say, Lord, I was wrong. I repent and I'm willing to face the consequences because to to continue on is to to head towards self-destruction. Because God is a source of all justice. And he says, listen to me. God is the source of all justice. His word says he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And we can look at this story and the heinous crime that takes place. You go, man, that is horrible. I can't believe that happened. And be blind to the fact that that we are offenders, that we are guilty, that we have rebelled against a holy God, that all of us have sinned against a holy God and fallen short of His glory. And the wages of that sin is death. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He's a God that has to punish sin. He brings justice. And we should listen. From a New Testament perspective, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of the people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. This is the bad news of the Gospel. We all stand condemned before a holy God because of our rebellion against Him. But praise God, there's good news. That's why it's called the gospel. He sent his son to do something about our rebellion. And in a familiar passage to many of us, John 3.16, God so loved the world, this sin-sick, rebellious world, that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Perish for their rebellion. Perish for their sin. Perish for their shaking their fist against God but have eternal life. Have eternal life. It's good news. So we can repent and turn back to Him. Confess our sin, and He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can put our faith in Christ alone, as we sang earlier, because He is the only Savior, not ourselves. And again, how different was Jesus, the King of Kings, who gives himself than Abimelech, the king who takes for himself. Listen. Listen. And the people at that time didn't, because all they saw was a man on a hill. Ah, what does he know? He's just a disgruntled son. What does he know? How about us? When we look at the cross, what do we see? 
the sign of a weak man who was crucified more than 2,000 years ago, who, yeah, he's a good guy, but, you know, what does he have to do with living life today? You know what the cross is, my friends? On one side of the coin, it is a howling reproach against us. That God must punish sin. And He let His wrath pour out in His Son for us. And our sin put Him there. On the other hand, it is our freedom. It is the King who sets us free. Do not mistake His powerful weakness as something that can't affect us and change us and have implications both now and for eternity. Because it does. Because it does. Number three, the Lord will not be mocked. We reap what we sow. Again, they look at this Jotham as just this man on the hill. 22, after Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jerubbaal's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. Now, Gael, the son of Ebed, moved with his clan to Shechem and its citizens to put their confidence in him. After they had gone into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden, and trodden them, they had a festival in the temple to their God. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gael the son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech? And why should the Shechemites be subject to him? Isn't he Drew Baal's son, those, those Manassehites? Why isn't Zubel, his, his deputy, serve the family of Hamor, Shechem's father? Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. God's not going to be mocked. In his sovereignty, he uses the fickleness and the disloyalty of these fallen people to stir up dissension against their chosen king. And they use this new kid in town to do so. But they forgot they elected a violent man. And he's going to use violence to keep his throne. So God uses sinful men to bring about his perfect justice. Verse 30. Then Zebul, the governor of the city, heard that Gael, the son of Abed, had uh, the son. Okay, let me try that again. When Zebul, the governor of the city, heard what Gael, the son of Abed, said, he was very angry, and under cover he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, "Gael, the son of Abed, and his clan have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night." You and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gael and his men come out against you, seize the opportunity to attack them. So Abimelech and his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gael, the son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city gate just as Abimelech and his troops came out from their hiding place. When Gael saw them, he said to Zubel, Zabul, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Zabul replied, uh, you mistake shadows of the mountain for men. But Gael spoke again, look, people are coming down from the central hill. A company is coming from the direction of the diviner's tree. 
Then Zebul said to him, Where's your big talk now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gael led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him all the way to the entrance of the gate, and many were killed as they fled. Then Abimelech stayed in Aruma, and Zebul drove Gael and his clan out of Shechem. So we would think, okay, we've kind of cleaned up Dodge City here, right? People learned their lesson, got rid of this Gale guy, but Abimelech is not done. He is a man who's driven by his hurt pride, his vengeance. Verse 42. Then the next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields. And this, it was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. Then he saw the people coming out of the city. He rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the, of the city gate. Then the two companies attacked them in the fields and struck them down. All that day Abimelech pressed and attacked against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. And he destroyed the city and scattered salt all over it. They scattered salt to make the, the ground unfertile. Okay, now have you exacted your vengeance, Abimelech? No. He's still not done. Verse 46. On hearing this, the citizens of the tower of Shechem, these are probably the leaders, went into the stronghold of the temple of el Bereth, which means the God of the covenant. Again, baal Bereth, aping as God. They go to a false place for false security. And when Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up to Mount Zalman. And he took an axe and cut down some of the branches, which he lifted on his shoulders. He ordered his men, quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. And they piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the Tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women also died. I don't know about you, but it's like, dude, this is overkill. It always has been for him. It's excessive. It's vengeance. It's rooted in his ego. You have offended me. I'm going to make you pay. But you think, okay, maybe this is over. But it's not. Hurt people hurt people. Verse 50. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes, which is a city about 10 miles northeast, and besieged it and captured it. We're not sure why. We don't know if they had a, a, an alliance with, with Shechem. We don't know if they, he was offended that you know, they didn't come out to attack Shechem when he attacked it. Maybe it was just plain bloodlust and, again, excessive vengeance. But conti continue on in verse 51. Inside the city... However, there was a strong tower to which all the men and women and all the people of the city had fled. And they locked themselves and climbed up in the, the tower roof. And Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, he was going to do exactly what he did in Shechem. A woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. As we're finding out in Judges, don't mess with the women. Abimelech had put his 70 or 69 brothers to death on a stone. God repaid him with a millstone coming down on his head. And again, he was motivated by his ego. Verse 49. Uh, 54, excuse me. Hurriedly he called his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they cannot say, a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. And when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Even his men realized, this is overkill. This is, we're done. Enough. <laughs> we're going home. This is ridiculous. Verse 56, thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. 
God also made the people of Shechem pay for their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal, came upon them. God brought justice upon the wicked. See, sometimes we expect that it's going to happen in the sweet by and by. It happens sometimes right in this life. God will be not be mocked. A man and a woman reaps what they sow. This is not a feel-good tale, folks. Some of you are even looking at me like, why did you even choose to preach this? Why is it in the Bible? If you're horrified by this passage, you should be. It's in here for us to be horrified. To get our attention. It is a warning shot. It is a... It's a call for us to examine ourselves. This is what happens when we ignore the living God. When we substitute a false God for the real God. When we look to our own life, our own rights, and our own selves as the source of right and wrong. When we trade our integrity, I'll call them later, and our self-centered, self-reliant, pragmatic solutions for following the living God. It's here for us to ask the question, am I living like that in some of the areas of my life? Like there's no God. Like I can be the arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. Like it doesn't matter. Because God really doesn't do anything. Au contraire. He does. This passage is not just about Israel. It's about all mankind. It's about you and me. It's about you and me. That men and women without God are in the darkness. So we see how bleak that darkness is. And by the way, it's not the only episode of darkness in this book, let alone the whole Bible itself. But here's the point. Without God, we are in darkness. But praise God, He's done something about the darkness. That's why He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has not left us to ourselves to wallow in that darkness. He's come to rescue us. That is where the Gospel really is good news. I'm going to read that passage again that I read earlier, John 3.16. And then what follows after that. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. God, Jesus wasn't sent to give us a smackdown, but to save the world through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Everyone in this room, listen to me. God has sent His Son for you. Have you taken your refuge in His shade? In the shade of His cross. That you will not be condemned. That you will not suffer judgment because punishment was poured out on Him for us. Will you receive the life that He gives? That's the good news, folks. That's the good news in the big picture. God doesn't want us to be condemned. He doesn't want us to walk in darkness. But will we respond to Him? And here are the the words at the very end. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Are you choosing the darkness? 
over the light? Are you choosing the darkness over the light? Have you put your faith in Jesus? Are you choosing your own light, which is darkness? That's what I want you to listen to today. That's what I want you to hear. This passage indeed is harsh, but it is a wake-up call. Especially if you've not responded to him. And then for those of us who know him, I think we do have to ask the question of, where are we allowing little vestiges grow up in our lives that are in opposition to his kingship? Where are we looking for life in something else besides him? Have you put your faith in him? Is he the source of all justice? And are you going to allow that justice to fall on yourself? Or are you going to allow it to fall on him as your savior? That's what I want you to listen to today. Because He is the Lord. He reigns. God will not be mocked. But He's given us a King. A King who gives us life. Choose to come under His shade today. Let me pray. And if you're somebody today who needs to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ, for the very first time. Just pray these words in your heart. My words are not magical. But they are the sincere expression of a repentant heart and a sincere heart in turning to the Lord. Lord God, I have sinned against You. I've chosen to do my own thing and I stand condemned before You. But I turn to You and put my hope in You. And repent. And Lord Jesus, come into my life. Reign in me. In my life. Change me. I put my faith in what you did on the cross in taking my penalty. In giving me life in your resurrection. Come into my life and change me. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And give me the eternal life that you promise. And for the rest of us, Lord, again, this passage is hard, it's harsh, it's, it's, it's so opposite of who you are. But you allow us to see the truth in order that we might respond to you and be grateful for the life and the light you give us. Make us grateful. Make us people who are walking in the light who are walking in You, who are abiding well in You, and giving life, and trusting You for justice rather than our own hand. We're grateful for Your Word, even though it stings, even though it's hard. We're grateful for the hope we have in it. And Lord Jesus, it's in Your name I pray these things. Amen. I am going to ask the worship team to come up and close us.